0: Praise the Lord, everyone. While you're standing, if you will turn with me to the book of Acts, the second chapter, you should be able to quote what I'm about to read, beginning in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins... And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The word untoward is scoliosis. So what he's saying is, save yourselves from this bent or crooked generation. So I want to preach to you a little while today about the warning of Pentecost. You may be seated. Before I begin tonight, let me say what a great honor it is to be here. It's always good to be home. I'm sorry I'm having to fill in for my brother because he's sick, um, but it's an honor to be able to be here and to speak to you. Uh, If I don't get my thoughts clear, um, I'm still suffering a little bit from jet lag. Twenty-seven hours of flight, getting home last weekend from Thailand, kind of uh, changed my life a little bit. As I get older, that's not quite as easy to do as it used to be. But I, uh, I have spent over a year um, in a journey that, at times, wasn't fun. Matter of fact, as part of this journey. I was arguing with God about some things, and I, <clears throat> I guess I crossed a line because I have never heard God speak to me so forcibly as he did that day. I don't often say God said anything to me, but I can tell you that day, there was no doubt in my mind what he said. My brother was preaching here back in, I think, May of last year, and he preached from Luke chapter 17. As he was preaching that night, I was following him in my iPad, and I was following the Scripture, and my Bible program allows me to touch words, and when I touch that word, it will give me the Greek text, and so I touched it, and when I saw that word... Uh, I don't know how many times I've studied that passage of Scripture or translated the Word, but I never paid attention to it like I did that night. And right over there where my daughter is sitting, I started a journey that I hope I never quit or get off of because I realized tonight that simply preaching the message of Pentecost is not enough. The revival of Pentecost didn't happen after Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. The revival that took place that day where 3,000 were added to the church didn't happen until he exhorted them with many other words. He testified, and there's a lot said that we don't know. Luke did not record what he said that day, but he summed it up by saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. While I was studying the passage of Scripture from Luke, the word rebuke, is not anywhere close to ours. And when I found out what it really meant and I started trying to apply it to my life, it was really uncomfortable. And so I had several conversations with God about that passage of Scripture trying to get Him to change what He said. And about three months ago, while I was doing one of these arguing things with God, God asked me a question. And I'll never forget the question he asked. And the question he asked me was, James, has there ever been a time in history where I needed your opinion? He let me know that day that what I thought didn't matter to him at all. My opinion... Is not what God's looking for. What God's looking for is my obedience. God is looking for me to simply obey what He has asked me to do. When I travel overseas and I come back to America, it takes me a while to get readjusted. Not to jet lag, but to the difference of what you deal with here and what you deal with there. Traveling to a foreign country and preaching to people who've never heard the gospel is not difficult to do. They're hungry. They're open. They're like sponges. You can't. You 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 finish an hour and they want two. You do two, they want three. You do three, they want four. I, I have many times talked or spoke for seven hours with no breaks. Now in America, that would never happen because. We Americans have all the answers, and our opinion is more important than anything. And what I think about it is really more important than what the Word of God really has to say. As I have read this passage of Scripture several times over the last few months, and I have looked at Pentecost and what makes us different and what brought us to where we are. How how did we get here? What brought us to this place? We got here because of the sacrifice of people who had a desire to discover truth and spent hours and weeks and months trying to discover what the Bible said. And finally, when that revelation came and and they discovered the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at Azusa Street in California in the early 1900s, started a journey that you and I enjoy today. None of us have paid the price they paid for us to have what we have today. None of us have come close to paying the price of what they paid to bring us the gospel that we say we love and that we hold dear. As I have had several conversations with preachers, one a few months ago he called me and we had quite a discussion about the Word of God and and as we were talking that day, he said, You know, James, I, I've read the Scripture and I've read Acts many times. And and we love Acts and Acts is our book. But he said, I, I tried to find in the book of Acts what God really wanted in His church. And I could not find anything in the book of Acts about what God says, This is important to me or this is not important to me. I couldn't find it. Then I read all of the epistles and could not find what was important to God. But then I read the book of Revelations, and I discovered what God says. I like this, and I don't like this. And I discovered that there's only one thing in the book of Revelations that God says, if you don't change, I will remove your candlestick. There's only one thing that God is serious enough about that if I cross that line, God said, you won't even exist anymore. I will remove your candlestick. And what God said He would remove a candlestick over was leaving first love. Thou hast left. I have somewhat against the emphasis, thou hast left thy first love. They didn't lose their first love. They left it. It wasn't some accident that somehow they got distracted and wasn't paying attention. And as a result of not paying attention somewhere, love just got lost in the business of life and every day. To leave first love, you have to first pick it up and take it somewhere and put it so that you know where it's at when you walk away. You're aware of where you left it, why you left it, and the conditions for leaving it. You left it. You wandered from it. Why? Because the most powerful force in your life is love. It is the most restrictive force. It's the most compelling force. It's the force in life that will will control you and call, it constrains you. See, there's nothing more powerful than love. Nobody has to tell me I shouldn't commit adultery because love tells me that. If I really love a person, why would I ever think about doing something to wreck their life? To be able to do that, I have to consciously make a decision to walk away from something because I don't want that something in my life. The first church entered a world that Peter said was crooked, perverse, twisted, or warped. The world he's speaking of is not the Roman world or the Greek world. It is a religious world called the Jews. He's preaching to the Jews that day in Jerusalem. And he says to them that you have allowed your world and your religious experiences to warp you or make you crooked. What did they do that began to bend them in the wrong way? Well they begin to add to God's law. When God gave them a list of laws to live life by, they decided that they needed an interpretation of what that was, and so they interpreted the laws with other laws. And so by the time Jesus arrives, there are over 600 ways to violate the Sabbath. There are rules... And then there are rules on how you break the rules. They have rules of the Sabbath that says that you can't do any kind of work on the Sabbath day. And so, uh, to be working on the Sabbath day, you couldn't wear sandals that had nails in them. By chance, one of those nails might work its way out or loose, and as you was walking, you might drag your foot and that nail sticking down might cause a little furrow in the ground, and the wind might blow a seed, and it might fall in the furrow, and if that seed sprung up, you had planted on the Sabbath. So no shoes with nails in them on the Sabbath. They had begun to twist things and, and, and to keep people from the house of God. God's house always had a place for Gentiles. There's a court of the Gentiles. By the time Jesus shows up, the Jews are so angry at their world and bitter at their world because of Roman occupation that they allowed the court of the Gentiles to become the area where they had their stalls, where they kept their animals and the things they sold in the temple. So in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing He does is go to the, uh, to the temple and, take a, uh, and, and braid a whip and drive out the money changers so that He made sure the Gentiles had a place to worship. God will get just as angry at all of us if we make it impossible for somebody to get to God. God doesn't want barriers in our approach to getting to Him. He doesn't want us to create obstacles that that keep people away from the presence of God. But He also doesn't want us allowing our lives to become like the world that we live in. As I begin studying, I I don't know why my mind goes where it goes sometimes. I'm not sure it's God. I think it's just the way I think sometimes. But I, I begin to look at that first church and the power of that first church. You read a few verses past where I read in Acts, you'll discover that one of the first things it says, and great fear filled all the people. Great fear. And on a repeated basis, you will discover in the book of Acts that great fear filled all the people. That is a common phrase throughout the book of Acts because they were awed in the beginning. They were awed that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church. They were awed by that number, and it caused a reverence that they would fear God. Now, you and I live in a world today that has absolutely no fear. We don't fear nothing. We're not afraid of anything. Matter of fact, Nike's slogan is no fear, and that's become the the, the slogan of our lives, no fear. And because of that, we sometimes have a very small respect for God and God's presence. As time went on, every generation has something about it that's crooked, that's perverse. And every generation is going to have to find the crookedness of the generation they live in and make sure that that crookedness doesn't affect the way I think about God or the way I perceive God. And one of the things, I I made a comment to my wife today. One of the things I've noticed as I travel and I've dealt with people is that Unless somebody has a real encounter with Jesus Christ that's a transformation, They, they can mark the place and the date where they had an experience that changed their lives. If they don't have that transforming experience, the odds are incredibly high. They will never get beyond what they think life is really all about. They'll never get past their ideal of normal. So if, if they grow up in a family that's twisted and warped, they just come to church and think that's what the church should be like and, and that's what everything around here should be all about. It, it doesn't matter if, if, if uh, the things are the way they are. That's just life. And we begin to justify things and, and, and we allow that twisted or, or crookedness of life to affect us, and you say, Brother Hughes, you're not making sense. Well, just bear with me. I think I can get there and cover all... I want to nail this down so when I get through it, nobody, nobody has to ask me what I said. There's always room for interpretation. I don't want interpretation. If you read the book of Revelations... The things God says, I don't like, I have somewhat against you. And he lists those things. There there were only three things God said, I cannot stand. One's the Nicolaitans. I can't stand them. One is, is those that teach Balaam. And the third thing is Miss Jezebel. It's in the book. Boy, it's quiet. That's the things God said. You don't know what God likes or don't like? God said, I, matter of fact, He said, I will kill the children of this lady. Well, that's pretty serious business when God says, if you won't deal with them, I'll deal with them. Folks, there's an Ananias and Sapphira in Pentecost. Whether we want to admit it or not, there's some things that God just gets fed up with, and He says, enough is enough, and when God says it's enough, somebody's gonna go, somebody will be carried out in a casket. God's not a big teddy bear. And and, and it's all about this God who loves us unconditionally, and, and it doesn't matter what we, it matters to God what I do. It matters to God whether or not I allow my world to cause me to think like it. It matters to God. Those seven churches, all those accusations were characteristics of their cities. They had lived in their world long enough, they started thinking like, looking like, and acting like the world. Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, thought like Ephesians. The church at Colossae thought like Colossians. The the church, all of those churches began to become the environment they were in. And that's the effect of an untoward generation on Pentecost. Pentecost is the only religion that will be affected by its world. The world doesn't affect any other religions. It has no effect on them at all. But Pentecost... Is affected by its world. Because God has a plan for you and I to live our life by, and He don't want us trying to manipulate it to get the best results. It's a pretty humiliating thing for God to say to you, When did I ever need your opinion about anything? God don't need my opinion. He don't want my ideas. He simply wants me to be obedient. And my book indicates that obedience is better than what? Sacrifice. God would rather me simply obey than to give a sacrifice offering. God's not interested in my sacrifice. God's interested in my obedience. As I study church history, I start discovering things. 100 years after First Pentecost, from... You add 100 to 33 A.D., go to 133 A.D. Now we start seeing things change because Pentecost is being affected by its world. And because man could not perceive or conceive how that God could become man, how that God could take on the form of a man and live as a man and have all of the issues of a man and be tempted in all points like as a man, how God could do that. So they began to try to reason with philosophy and and with ideas. Of, uh, how do you explain this? And, and they couldn't explain it. So all of the learned people of the world of that day, they, they begin to say, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really a man. He he, he had the the image of a man or he looked like a man, but if you touched him, there was nothing there. It's called the Gnostics. And, And Gnosticism became a problem that produced the Trinity. That's where it came from. Because the crookedness of a generation or or the thought process of a world began to affect the thought process of the church. And the church lived in its world long enough that it began to think like it. And I'm I'm, I'm going to be honest with you folks tonight. I'm tired of arguing with our young people why homosexuality is a genetic defect. I'm tired of it. But it's happening on a regular basis because they're being sent to public schools where they're teaching them that it's just a gene defect. God created them. So if God created them, how, how can God be angry with them? Or how can God not, not, not love them? Or how, how, how can it be wrong? Because we've allowed the perverseness of our society... To to cause us to be uncomfortable with speaking or standing for what is truth. We are becoming intimidated by our world. And instead of standing up and saying, thus says the Word of God, we just stand in silence and don't say anything. And silence is not golden. Silence is consent. The day I don't speak up and the day I don't say something is the day I have consented to what I'm around. I, I've learned that lesson the hard way. I have, I have been in environments where people have said things and I didn't say anything and they walked away saying, well, Brother Hughes believes this. That don't happen anymore. If I hear something that's contrary to what I believe, I can promise you This old man's gonna blurt it out, and I may become kind of hard-headed or just an old man on a soapbox. And last June I was accused of that by a young man. Life's really quite interesting. Preached a sermon on how will you handle offense, and when I get through, he follows me outside. And he says. Mr. Hughes, he didn't call me Brother Hughes. Nothing you said today was from the Word of God. You were just an old man on a soapbox. God sent me to pray for you, but I, I didn't feel like it was the right thing, so I didn't do it. How does it happen? You know, I I read in my Bible that there arose a generation after Joshua that knew not God, neither were they acquainted with His way. That, That literally translates, they not only didn't know God, they had absolutely no knowledge of what He did and how He did it. They had no knowledge of a red sea. They had no knowledge uh, of manna in a desert. They had no knowledge uh, of a stone that produced water twice. They had no knowledge uh, of clothes that grew and never wore out. No knowledge. How'd that happen? How does how does something cease to exist in one generation? That's not five generations later. That's the next one following Joshua. The next generation had no idea who God was. You see, the, the problem with the perverseness of a, a world and the crookedness of a, a generation has been since the garden. It started immediately afterward with Adam's two sons, Cain and Abel. One thinks that a sacrifice only has to be some, some beans and, and, and whatever you, you bring out of the field. And I walk into a temple or a tabernacle on the day of inauguration to see a funeral. First day of church. First day. Moses, or, or his two nephews, Aaron's sons decided it wasn't important to bring fire from the first altar to the second one. So they went outside. They had This is so mind-boggling to me. To get coals that they took behind the veil, they had to go outside. It was closer and easier to do what was right. They had to walk by the altar to get out the door and had to go find somebody whose, whose fire would, still had coals and then get coals from a strange fire and take it behind the veil and, and offer incense. And God killed both of them. And he warned Aaron, if you shed one tear, they'll drag you out the same way we dragged these two boys out. Now tell me God's not serious about some things. Tell me that it doesn't really matter about certain issues to God. I'm here to tell you tonight that everything matters to God. And I'm sick of hearing this question. Is this a heaven or hell issue? Because everything is a heaven or hell issue. Everything is. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it's sin. And sin will keep you out of heaven. we have become uncomfortable with conviction preaching we don't like it we'd rather feel good i started going back in my mind trying to to remember how far back in time i had to go to think about powerful services of conviction that that people linger around an altar for hours and never and and, and didn't go anywhere and I had to go back 20 plus years. And I started thinking about what's happened in those last 20 years. And, and it, because people have issues, I'm sick of issues. People have problems. We try to help them with their problems. Instead of preaching them to an altar to repent. We've just created a place where it's okay to have issues. It's a synagogue. Issues are okay at a synagogue. They're not okay at a temple. At a temple, lives change. At the tabernacle, things were totally different than they were in a synagogue. Synagogue, you just talk about God but never encounter God or have any kind of, a, uh, of an experience with God. But if you really want to know what God is all about, go to the tabernacle, die at the door when you show up and when you die coming in, now you have coals to take to the altar of incense so that you can worship with your heart right because you died coming in. Ephesus lost love because it became too restrictive. They just pushed it aside. I won't be affected by it. Notice that Jesus says to them, Repent and do your first works again. He don't want any of that stuff in between. He said, go back to where you started. Go back to the beginning. You know why God required Israel to take 12 stones out of the Jordan River with them and take 12 stones from the bank and put it in the Jordan River and those 12 stones wound up at Gilgal? It was to remind them of what God had done for them, where He had brought them from, and all the things that had changed in their life and what God was doing to make their lives different. You better have some memorials in your life that you can take yourself to and remind yourself of what God's done for you and where God's brought you from and and the the provisions and blessings of God. And, And you need to have them as well so you can take your kids there and show your children what this is all about and why we have 12 stones. We get tired of telling the story. In the last... Supper in the upper room, hours before crucifixion. Jesus took at least two hours to tell the story of the Exodus. Part of that last supper was remembering and and being reminded that we had to have blood on doorposts to get out. And if there was no blood on the doorpost, the death angel would visit and we would have no deliverance. But if there's blood on a doorpost, that, that was our exit out of Egypt. Jesus reminded those 12 men why that exodus was important. We need to remind ourselves how we got here. You see, I'm... I, I'm Pentecostal today because of a father who saw a vision of hell. He opened a furnace to stick a leaf spring in to temper it. And when the, he opened that furnace door and shoved that leaf spring in, he saw hell and heard the screams of hell and saw it in a vision Threw his tools down told his boss, I'm going home, and went home and got mom and went to church and got the Holy Ghost that day because he saw a vision of hell. I'm reminded of that story. He's not here to tell it, but I've heard it enough times to know how to tell that story myself. And I want my children to know how dad, grandpa, grandpa, People pop. How he had his first experience. And I can promise you, you you could never get him past that experience. He'd talk to anybody about it. It was a a day of, of an incredible event in his life. Generations can change and do. And the generation of today is not the generation I grew up with. Oh, I, there, there are days in my life I wish it was back, especially when I had to get out of my car and make sure everything is locked up and hid. Because I remember going to downtown Wichita Falls and Dad rolled all the windows down, leave the keys in the ignition and get out and walk away and leave the car and come back and it was still there because we valued one another. I missed that. I, I missed that your word was just as important as anything else in your life. That if you said something to somebody, you had to live by it. I we haven't gotten better because we've changed. Matter of fact, I, I, I start looking at all this stuff and I hear what people are doing and, and some of the things that's happening, and I I just think in my my my, my mind, I, I you know, all those things that people do because they want to be free, the only thing they get free from is the control of flesh. You you never turn flesh loose and become more spiritual. I promise you. You, you don't allow your flesh to... To control your life, and it will make you pray one day more or, or one minute more. You don't turn flesh loose and become spiritual. The only way to become spiritual is to conquer flesh and to control flesh. And if you don't control flesh, then the probab- the probability—is that you will live by the flesh. I kind of read something in my Bible that addresses that flesh issue and says he that lives after the Spirit and then he that lives after the flesh. God God is concerned about how we live and what happens in our lives. You know what's amazing to me? You have more rules to play golf than just about any other thing you want to do in life. They tell you what kind of shirt to wear. Tell you what kind of clothes you got to wear when you. I don't see any men going up and at anybody at the golf course saying, you know what? I don't like that rule about a shirt that buttons. I want to play in my t shirt today. Isn't that amazing? Do I need to stop? Maybe I shouldn't go overseas anymore because I get too worked up when I come home. So, we live in a generation today that says if you can't prove it by the Bible, it's not important. Give me a scripture. How many holes can you poke in your body to make it look better? Let's get logical here. First of all, you can't even see it, so all you can do is enjoy the pain of it. And if you're enjoying the pain of it, you really got a problem. you you really have a problem. Matter of fact, you know, I, we, we have all these laws about child abuse. And I, and I walk through the malls and hear little infants screaming because some dumb adult just drove a needle through their ear. What happened to child abuse? Well, it don't cover certain things because certain things should be allowed. because, Folks, you can't hang enough stuff on, die, stain. You can't do enough to outside of you to change one thing about you. The external can't even be seen. I can see from here down. That's it. My eyeballs are not on little telescopes or, or retractable arms. I can go out and check, check it out see if it's all together what it looks like. Anything you start doing to the outside of you is to get other people to look at you. And and when you usually start doing things to get other people to look at you, there's a high probability you're going to probably do something you wished you hadn't done. Because our world says, well, what's wrong with it? So we're going to have to argue with our kids. Paul said, let me give you just a word of advice. Doesn't nature, anybody remember that? See, you don't need Scripture and verse to be able to address issues in life. Some things you just ought to be able to think about and say, you know what, that's not a real wise thing. It's not a good idea to play ping pong in the middle of the freeway. Now, I was in the airport a few weeks ago. I don't remember where I was at. I'm watching a news clip in the airport, and some nitwit is walking down the middle of the freeway, walking from lane to lane, and people have dodged him, and, and he's just walking all over the freeway. And eventually somebody hit him. Say, brother Hughes, that don't happen here. Oh, how about spiritually? You just start getting out in some areas of life and turn flesh loose and say, "Well, what's wrong with it?" And You just allow. You, you, you're walking down the freeway. The devil can't read your mind, but he can sure read your expressions and what you do about life. And he controls the world you live in. So you showed up on the face, and he's going to take over, and he will manipulate everything around you, and your life will become what you're thinking. If it wasn't an issue, and I close with this, read Colossians chapter 3. Starting in verse 5. If things are not a problem. Now first of all, Colossi at the time of this writing is a church of less than 10 people. 10. The city has died. It's become a ghost town. There's nobody living there. Why would Paul Take the time and energy to write one of the most important epistles in the New Testament that tells us more about the deity of Jesus Christ than any other epistle. Why would he take the time to write to the church at Colossae? Ten people? You wouldn't think it'd be worth the time. Ten people? Why, why, how's this going to affect ten people? But he says, mortify. There are some things in life you better kill. If you don't kill the first four, the fifth one will be produced as a result of the first four not dying. The first one is fornication. The second one is lasciviousness, evil concupiscence. Covetousness is that fifth one, which is idolatry. And the only place in the New Testament you find any warning about idols is right there. They worship Baal. They worship Zeus. They worship any other God. But if you don't control flesh, and those first four deal with flesh, if you don't control flesh, then flesh becomes your God. And the worship is to God. But the God is flesh. Covetous means to desire more, to want more, to take more, to receive more. It's selfish, self-centeredness. And selfishness is idol worship. I become my own God. I don't care what God wants, what anybody else thinks about life. My Bible indicates that I'm not supposed to be a stumbling block to somebody. Now, I don't like it that I've got a lot of people looking at my life and saying, what's James doing? But you know what? That little girl right there, and that one right there, and that little fellow wherever he's at back there, they're important enough to me for me to watch where James goes, what James does, and what James' behavior is all about because I know they are watching me and what I do affects their lives. Is it fair? Well, the world would say, no, it has nothing to do with being fair. I just want their lives to be better, and I don't want their lives to be affected because Dad or Grandpa, Papa did things that would wreck it. My behavior affects a lot of people. There are three more on the other side of town that it affects, and so I'm constantly aware. You know what? That's probably not a good place for me to go because... How would my grandkids see that? I'm not worried about you. You're important. But I'm more worried about their interpretation of my behavior than anybody else. And I think that's important. But my world says it's no big deal anymore. And because our world has changed its philosophy about life, it's okay for us to just about do anything in life. You know, the sad part of it is today, you can't do dumb things anymore. They get published. They get published real quick. And what's shocking is, some people don't realize they did something real dumb. See, our society has changed so much, we're not even offended. I remember coming to Houston in 1971. was driving around 610 Loop. I don't remember where I'd been. I was going back to Bible College. I, I'm, I'm 20 years of age, just got here to this big city. And I remember driving by a billboard. And 70s are the, the, the days of, uh, of the, the Paisley or whatever that funny-looking scroll was, the, the design and the, the barrel ball, all that junk, the hippies. And, and, and I'm driving by a billboard, and I nearly had a wreck because there was a picture of a woman on that billboard that was incredibly immodest. And I remember it became a heated debate in City Hall, and they took the billboard down. But there's no embarrassment anymore. We, we've lost our ability to blush. How'd that happen? It's the perverse world we live in. It's the crookedness of a world that has allowed us to think, you know what, there's nothing really embarrassing anymore and, and, and I I guess I'm from the old school. There's some things that bother me. When I hear people talk about that, I don't I'm just uncomfortable. The only one who can save myself from my generation is me. You can't expect your church to save you. You can't expect your pastor to save you. You can't expect your husband to save you or your wife to save you. If you're going to be saved from the generation you live in, it's because you look at it and say, you know what? Maybe this is not a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this is something I shouldn't be part of. And I look at this world I live in and say, hmm, I, don't, I don't want to be like. I save myself from the crookedness and perverseness of my world. And when I save myself, it produces a 3,000 soul revival. You will to see revival in America? It'll happen if God's kids started saving themselves from this perverse generation we live in. See, it's happening overseas all the time 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, all getting hold Holy Ghost at one time. And you can say uh, they just added numbers. No, I've, I've seen it happen. Incredible, because they're hungry. They're not trying to figure out, well, maybe that works, maybe that doesn't work. They're just hungry for a different life. And when they get hungry and they're obedient, there's incredible things happen. One of the meetings we were in not long ago, a a lady who had been blind from birth in one eye starts screaming in the middle of service. I can see, I can see, I can see. Because that's what Pentecost is about. But that can happen if we don't. Discover how to save ourselves from the twistedness. Why? Because it happens in a mind and nobody can get in your mind but you. It all happens with my thought process. Here's some of the problems with the mind. The moment you experience something that gives you a little bit of pleasure and and, and there's a little bit of stress involved, your brain instantly discovers, ooh, that is a remedy for stress. And so the next time stress shows up, your body starts craving whatever that behavior was, and you don't even have to lust for it or even think about it. Instantly, your body said, ooh, that, that, that felt good. You, you put a little alcohol in the body, ooh, that, that numbed life a little bit. So next time life comes along, you, you need a little bit of, uh, of something. Take the edge off, ooh, the body's going to, boy, you'll start craving it. Why? Because there's an area of life that nobody can control but you, and that's your mind. And I have to take control of my mind and make sure I don't allow my mind to become controlled by my world. Please stand.